Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to the first Asset Allocator podcast of 2023. I'm Dave Baxter and as ever we have Asset Allocator's own David Thorpe, just the two of us this time. David, how are you doing? I'm very good, thanks mate. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, how was your, uh, how was your uh, festive period, etc? Uh, very good, yes. Very, um, very relaxing and hectic in in the same breath. So, were you in, were you in London or are you at your country pile <laughs> at the Investors Chronicle Mansion? Um, <laughs> yes, just it's just, it's just it's just like the Playboy Mansion, but with more funds, <laughs> <laughs> much more investment education and useful resources. <laughs> if you want to go to the website, um, but yes, very relaxing break. Hopefully, we'll. Uh, well, let, let's talk about it. It's been it's been an interesting kind of year that's, that's behind us now. I suppose, you know, a lot of our kind of previous podcasts have involved those words like unprecedented and turbulent, interesting, all those kind of euphemisms for what was a pretty um, torrid time for markets. But it, but I guess one bright spot that we, we touched on a bit was um, income investing, you know, various forms of income investing, particularly equity income, that was an area of kind of relatively better returns you know what are you what have you kind of been seeing in the in the dfm space i mean we've been tracking now more of the kind of income portfolios that dfms tend to run to start kind of what what interesting trends have you seen there sure well as as you said i mean 2022 is a, a highly unusual year for many reasons and one of the reasons was that um both equities and bonds they fell at the same time. There's only been about three times since 1900 where that's happened. Um, so there really was no hiding place for any kind of investor. But ironically, income investors had maybe a few more things in their in their favour because of the bond prices fell. Obviously, that meant bond yields rose. And one of the trends, certainly in the final quarter of 2022, was um, more allocators out there talking about bonds uh, switching towards bonds whether that was uh, investment grade or or govies but people who hadn't really wanted to own bonds for a decade were back looking at them and on the asset allocator income allocations database uh, we could see that at the uh, uh, that in 2022 the average fixed income allocation uh, in an income portfolio was was 31 percent i think there might be an element of uh historic legacy there because 31 is probably quite low uh, by historical standards but but that reflects that pre-2022 bonds didn't really yield anything and therefore there wasn't a lot of reason to own them as an income asset um when you go over to the equity side again income investors were bolstered because many people would regard the kind of equities that are in on the UK market as being uh, very favourable for income with your miners and your your oils and your your banks. And the UK, the FTSE actually outperformed or delivered a positive return in 2022, which again feels a little counterintuitive amid all the negativity around the the wider economy. And that was certainly another another, uh, trend among allocators thinking that maybe the the uk had uh, had found its role and in our income database 16 percent of portfolios on on average of course there's always uh outliers and it's quite a wide delta were in uk equities <laughs> and 
maybe that will be the that will be something that in 2023 will be very differentiated is who's in the uk and does it work and how people are positioned in bonds because if we do have a really sharp recession then maybe mm. there'll be a rush into govies which would push yields down and if we do have a really sharp recession maybe the more cyclical nature of the uk market would not be the place to be so i guess that's where 2023 uh, will reveal a lot and how have those kind of bond exposures been shaping up because i suppose as you allude to there are there are many different ways to sort of capitalize on these these interesting now you know for the first time in a long time interesting yields but i don't know it feels like this well last year we've been kind of hearing plenty about i suppose allocators kind of tiptoeing into the higher bond yield space via for example your you know short duration investment grade kind of playing it relatively safe but is, is that what you're seeing have we actually got people jumping on what well, i imagine there's some pretty enormous yields now in, in you know the riskier areas your kind of emerging market debt your your high yield and so on well i think um emerging market debt is is um very much something that that people are more interested in right towards the end of 2022 mm-hmm. for the simple reason that emerging market debt is generally out of favor when the dollar is strong um, we had obviously a little bit of relative dollar weakness towards the end of 2022 and that was when allocators began to look again at emerging market debt uh, in terms of income exposures it's it's uh three three percent or thereabouts which again probably reflects more more on history than on current views and as ever there there are there's a wide uh, uh, delta there there are very many of the allocators that we cover that have zero in there um and then we have one firm with uh, 13 and a half percent of their income portfolio in in emerging markets so it's wow. probably an asset class which is very well contentious is the wrong word but you know you, people tend to take very punchy positions they don't mm-hmm. tend to allocate to em debt funds just for the sake of, of having an allocation or or just because there's a, a benchmark waiting or or whatever the the term is in terms of um, one of the other factors that we saw within that bond allocation was a move away from uh, strapped bond funds and into those more specialist areas that you mentioned, such as short duration or or high yield or investment grade. And when we saw this on the database earlier in the year, uh, we went out and had a had a chat with a number of allocators just to ask them why why they thought that would would be. And the response that came back really was many of the strap bond funds got their duration called wrong in in 2022 and the rationale of many allocators to owning strap bond funds is that you're kind of outsourcing things like duration calls to a manager when you hire a strap bond fund and you're paying a higher fee for it but if they're getting it wrong then the allocators decided to do their own calls on on fixed income and so moved out of strap bond and into those more specific areas of the of the market and that was de- definitely um a trend uh, during the year as yeah. well across all of the portfolios not just income but on the income side strap bond funds are 3.7 percent and as i mentioned earlier emerging market debt is 3.1 percent so the fact that there's um almost as much capital deployed in emerging market debt bond funds as there are in strap bond funds perhaps tells you that strap bond funds haven't been popular with those income investors this year. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a really fascinating trend. I and Yeah, I mean, I remember kind of say, if we think back to say late 2021, you still had plenty of the kind of big strap bond fund teams kind of still sitting in that inflation is transitory camp, which has, you know, been proved wrong and lots of people were in that camp, to be fair. But um, I don't know, I mean, I wondered on, on that front about the kind of, I, I suppose if DFMs are moving slightly away from almost outsourcing their bond decisions, I also wondered if it was just because or with such high yields available across the space, maybe there are more easy wins in theory. So you don't you don't need to kind of play it safe by kind of getting a you know a big fund that juggles around different parts of the asset class for you. Um, and you know, may I just to speculate wildly, maybe you'd see a similar thing with kind of um, you know, DFMs dip in and out of whether they use global equity funds, for example. You know, when that sometimes they want to kind of play it safe and they want something that's a bit of a core catch-all holding. But I suppose maybe if we see a bit more clarity to see around kind of monetary policy and people do start to think that um, there are some kind of bargains um, on offer in terms of, you know, buying into equities and stuff, maybe, maybe they'll... I mean, even on, the even on the government bond side, if you can get 4% by buying a, a US treasury for, for three years, you know, even I can figure that one out. So <laughs> why, why, do you, why do you need to pay a, a strap bond fund manager to figure that one out for you. But look, it's unlikely that yields of 4% on a, on a three-year a three T-bill will, will last forever, particularly if we have a, an economic downturn because that would be expected to send lots of capital into the risk-free, so-called risk-free asset, which is, which is T-bills. So maybe next year, allocators will have to work a little bit harder on the bond side. And it will be a fascinating and think to see whether that means they do go back to the strap bond funds in the year ahead. Yeah, yeah. What one other point on on bonds that um, there was a kind of interesting specialist commentary from um, I think AXA, Chris Igo, was making an interesting point that perhaps, given what's happened in the last year, perhaps the profile of a bond investor and how they get ret their returns will change for the time being. So rather than kind of hoping for those capital gains as I suppose you would have done when the yields were low and they just seem to only ever go lower in a bizarre fashion. You know, now maybe you are actually kind of jumping on that, you know, you mentioned those 4%, 3% yields and then kind of, um, you know, hold it, even holding it to maturity and just kind of like clipping that that coupon. But moving on, well, maybe not moving on slightly, we've kind of discussed some of the, the income portfolios and that's very interesting and always interesting to see how they differ from kind of the standard balance portfolios. But it's also been quite tricky and, you know, quite disorienting year for kind of your, your so-called cautious and more defensive portfolios, especially given what we've spoken about bonds. You know, finally, the concerns about that as a safe haven have kind of come to pass, although maybe they look more attractive now. But, but what have you been seeing when it comes to the kind of cautious mandates that DFMs have been running? Sure. Well, um, one of the things that uh, baffled me, but maybe the more I think about it is, is more intuitive, is the, the cautious mandates that we cover. UK equities are really quite popular there. Uh, UK equity funds, I mean, about 6% of the, uh, the, the average is 6% uh, among the, the DFMs we cover um, in, in terms of being in, in UK all company type funds. 
and that's a higher allocation than they have to, for example, uh, the US market, which is obviously a much, a much bigger market. So if you've got the same in the UK and the US, then you're obviously running a huge overweight to the UK relative to the US. And then no other equity regional funds are anywhere uh, close at all. Europe is, is, is 1.2%, Japan 0.9%, emerging markets 0.8%, Asia 1.6%, and even global funds, which you would think a cautious portfolio could say, well, the most diversified option of all, global funds in, in cautious portfolios that we cover are 3.6%. So just over half of the allocation that is there to, to UK funds. So I think that was perhaps the most surprising element um, of what I saw among the, the cautious DFMs that we that we look at. Do you think, it, it, is that because of UK equity income? I mean, are they are DFMs just kind of jumping onto those funds that kind of hold seemingly reliable UK blue chip stocks and therefore that's meant to be a safe haven or what? But well, I mean, the, the the irony of it is, of course, that that position, however they arrived at it, has worked very well this year. As mentioned earlier, the FTSE mm. has delivered a positive return, and some of the assets that you know you can look at commodities and say, well, they're a they're a defensive exposure because people always need commodities, or you can look at them and say they're deeply cyclical, and it kind of depends on on how how you want to look at that. But this year, it, it has certainly worked. I do wonder as well if it's a question of. Um, being easier to explain to end clients what they own if, if they're if they're cautious yeah. they don't want to own anything exotic they don't want to hear about you know an emerging market bank but they don't mind hearing about Lloyd's or something because they know what Lloyd's is and I wonder if there's an element of that in there I wonder also if there's an element of um, of, of the currency uh, side of it that if you've got a cautious client then you think maybe let's reduce the number of things that could lose their money and one of those things in in theory of course would be currency movement again the currency movement would have not not necessarily helped them in 2022 but in other years it's another layer of volatility so perhaps keeping yeah. their exposure as close as they can to the uk market helps but also as as you mentioned a number of stocks that people would regard as many people would regard as being defensive in nature such as Unilever, Diageo, etc. There are a lot of those in the UK relative to certainly to the US and to many other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that currency point because that will definitely, at least on the surface, kind of have a that will be having an effect on your kind of headline returns if you think about the um, you know, the kind of dollar has really flattered, say look at your typical global fund or you know many overseas funds kind of dollar strength sterling weakness until fairly recently has really flattered some of those really poor returns from um, most of 2022 so i guess now that kind of turns back maybe that will make a make a difference to um how different portfolios appear to be holding up so i guess more generally have you seen any kind of interesting shifts in terms of I suppose the last year or so, it's been a bit of a shock for plenty of investors. You know, I, I mean, I normally write about, as you mentioned, kind of, um, I write for DIY investors, a lot of retail investors, and I imagine they will have perhaps got a bit of a shock in 2022, just by realising that perhaps they're less diversified by things like investment style than they assumed, you know, maybe they've loaded it up too much on your Bailey Giffords, your Fundsmith equity, so on and so forth. And you haven't really had enough of the kind of the value. 
are we seeing any kind of interesting shifts on that front in the model portfolio space? I mean, I suppose you would hope that DFMs will have, you know, tended to kind of run, either run their value and growth funds, you know, side by side in same regions, or equally, interestingly, sometimes you do just have kind of DFMs using um, regional exposures as rough style proxies, but trying to, you know, balance that out as best they can. Yeah, I think that the regional exposures as a style proxy is something that we hear a lot from yeah. from DFMs. Um, and again, they're relatively cautious on using global funds because they feel that part of their, their job, part of the thing that they charge the client a fee for is to do asset allocation and that global funds are letting some other person do the asset allocation for you. So they want to do the, re the allocation themselves, which means allocating to regional funds, and obviously within that comes the comes the style element as well. The other thing I think that's been something of a revelation in in 2022 has been um, the performance of something that we've mentioned many many times on the uh, on the podcast throughout the year, which is those um, alternative income or or specialist mm -hmm. kind of investment trusts that that do things like music royalties. 2022 is a tough year for for those things many many reasons why that could be it could yeah. be as simple as really they're priced off bonds and that really they're a debt instrument and if bond yields rise those things look less attractive it could also be that they just got got very big that there was less good stuff to buy they bought the things that are in your music collection which is obviously excellent and now they're on onto the stuff that i listen to which nobody else likes so therefore <laughs> that's not been a very good commercial proposition but I think that's been a factor of the of the year that many clients um, and many advisors nobody really knew how those things would perform in a, in a more volatile time because they didn't exist the last time we had volatile times. Yeah, obviously they existed in twenty twenty two and they didn't thrive. And you know, every time you get something new onto the market, everybody says the same thing, which is, "Oh, this is not cyclical. This is a structural growth story." I suspect. Many, many fund managers' careers have the epitaph. I thought it was a structural growth story at the bottom. <laughs> because even if they are, it doesn't it doesn't matter. The cycle will the cycle will hurt them for a period. And maybe, you know, Bailey Gifford, I'm sure one of their senior people was quoted on our on our website, stadvisor.com during, during the end of December, and they were talking about, you know, these are structural, this is structural growth, these are long term, and that's what we that's what we say on the tin. But they were saying that many of their clients were saying to them, look, the tech thing was great. Could you now sell the tech thing and buy BP and Shell and own them and then switch back to the tech thing? And Bailey Gifford were just saying, look, we don't, we don't do that. Terry Smith told us that earlier in the year as well. So it is interesting. Did, did clients realize? I know those firms have never hidden what they do. They've been very, very, very out there saying that that's what they do, that they do the growth stuff. But did clients realise that it's starting to look like they didn't? It's starting to look like it's starting to look like um, like there wasn't enough. And I think there's also been an element of if somebody says to you, "Who are the big growth guys?" People would say Terry Smith. They would say Bailey Gifford. They would say Lindsay Train. They would say uh, some others. And there are many out there other than those guys. But if you say, "Who are the big value guys?" Lots of those people have left the have left the market. They've gone off to spend yeah. more time with their golf clubs and stuff. So it's not been as obvious to know where to where to switch to really. And maybe that's been 
part of the year, the, the, the famous Tina, there is no alternative because you looked around and you went, well, the last time that I wanted to allocate to a, to a value guy, that was my value guy, but that guy's not there anymore. So who, who do you go to? Who's got the track record? Because no value guy arguably has the track record when there was a decade of, of growth, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, a common problem. I, mean, I, I remember an allocator talking about this back in perhaps it was 2017 or thereabouts, kind of the, just this problematic dynamic where if an area is out of favour for a while, then, you know, all the funds get shut down, all the fund managers disappear, and therefore when a particular subsector or even an investment style, I guess in this case, is coming back in favour and looking appealing, I mean, the example in 2017, I think, was commodity funds. You know, there's not necessarily much much left out there. Yeah, I I suppose what will be interesting is, I I mean, I earlier this year, I was looking at the concept of whether you do have many natural kind of like style neutral funds. And it's it's quite hard to find them because I suppose a lot of funds have drifted into that growth area over time or they've been one of those kind of diehard remaining value stalwarts so maybe now you kind of see drift the other way of kind of generalist funds going into more value who knows time will tell absolutely and um the other element within those cautious portfolios i suppose the intuitive bit is that they have been exposed as, as you would completely expect to fixed income and the largest fixed income component is obviously is actually investment grade rather than govies which was Maybe again counterintuitive in a in a cautious portfolio, but given that Govies uh, sold off sharply, it may just be a function of market movement rather than conscious asset allocation. But in twenty twenty three, investment grade is obviously taking taking more credit risk than than Govies. Will that continue then? Because at the moment, investment grade, the average allocation in cautious portfolios is is fourteen percent. With Govies, it's it's eleven. As ever, there are very wide deltas within there. And um, I mean, particular shout out to the to the DFM uh, has allocated forty six percent of their cautious portfolio to investment grade bonds. Wow! That's, I think I think that would be called a, that would be called a punchy um, location. You know, twenty twenty three, as mentioned earlier, if if we are going to have recession, particularly I think recession in in the US, we'll probably have people. Uh, charging back towards towards govies it'll be interesting to see what happens with investment grade there there's a very big debate in the market around that because you've got the the guys who say look investment grade bonds are actually mostly good quality companies that don't really default so if somebody's giving you eight percent on a thing that doesn't default yeah. why wouldn't you own it but there are others who say well there's default rates always pick up when you have a downturn so we'll see and on the govies side well Eight on a on an investment grade is is sounds fine, but four to the US government for a shorter duration thing arguably sounds even finer. You can see why I'm a journalist with grammar like that. But the, but, <laughs> um, but um, so it'll be interesting to see what what happens in the in the year ahead in in, in that regard. But that's certainly where the cautious um, portfolios are. Yeah, the the default rates will be interesting to keep an eye on, won't they? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I I remember last year reading some forecasts i think this was even specifically with regard to high yield so kind of punchier but um i think it was fitch was kind of basically predicting that you will have an uptick in in defaults but what was interesting was they expected that uptick still to be to a level that was kind of 
you know, relatively low compared with the the record of kind of previous decades, and certainly not anywhere near. Um, I believe it will have been financial crash, you know, near, near the levels of kind of the last major um, catastrophe. But um, we may all be proved wrong, and uh, and things may be um, much more difficult than than some people forecast. I I just want to pick up on one other point you you mentioned. You were talking about kind of investment trusts, and you know, clearly, kind of investment trusts. I suppose are maybe you know, then they're, they're not always vehicles DFMs have massively liked using for various reasons, whether it's structural or how you kind of fit it into a portfolio and all, all sorts of issues like that. Um, but perhaps now they are more indispensable because, like you said, they're they're a route into all those interesting asset classes, be it music royalties or um you know infrastructure direct property and, and that kind of thing i suppose what's also interesting is investment trusts are do have that kind of double cheapness on them at the minute because of discounts widening out you know have you seen any have you seen any kind of pickup in dfms using them a bit more in 2022 and you know would would we expect to see more of that or is it still going to be that kind of structural reluctance to to go closed-ended well I, I think as you mentioned the structural reluctance the, the problem there is that as we get more consolidation in the um in the advice market the tickets that dfm's write are bigger so the minimum investment that they can put into each uh, fund gets larger and the number of investment trusts who have that liquidity to take for example a 50 million ticket in, in one go or even maybe a 25 million ticket in one go it's quite a small number of trusts who can do that and maybe nothing can change that trusts also found it quite well i know that there's some data that says trust raised about 5.2 billion in 2022 of, of new capital which obviously does improve liquidity at the headline level but there weren't a lot of new trusts coming to the market which tells you that the the number of buyers out there across the spectrum has been a little bit lower. There have been a, a number of investment trust mergers in 2022, which is perhaps an acknowledgement from that sector that there were too many, too many trusts or too many trusts doing the same things. Those mergers obviously create a smaller number of bigger vehicles. That's exactly what DFMs want to see, because, as I say, the bigger vehicles provides more liquidity. So, the direction of travel structurally is interesting the investment trusts are moving in a way that the dfms probably like but the dfms are also consolidating which moves ahead moves in the opposite direction <laughs> 2023 maybe we'll we'll see something on that in terms of where the um interest in investment trusts is dfms tend to say that they only buy the investment trust if there isn't an open-ended equivalent you know, there, there generally is. You, you make a, a, a good point about the, the discounts, but for all the discounts suit sort of bargain hunters, DFMs, because they're creating things at the portfolio level, not all of their clients across the different risk spectrums will be as comfortable with the bargain hunting element. Uh, the sell-off in investment trusts probably means that the yields on investment trusts have, have gone up. Um, but if you're an income investor again, you can just get the higher yield from a bond. So what's the reason to go into the uh, investment trust for, for income is uh, certainly something that many have uh, have talked about um, over the year. There are that cohort of investment trusts who've put up their dividends for 30, 40, 50 years. I think the record is 
the city of london was 52 or 53 years that's always there that's always uh, mm. reliable but and maybe that's something that the income guys will will look at in the future but certainly in 2022 the structural factors and the wider market factors seem to have determined where the level of demand is rather than a, a change in, in mindset and those infrastructure vehicles maybe that has been something that people have allocated to and nobody nobody really allocates the open-ended infrastructure or open-ended property mm. that's the other thing that the fms have talked about this year is um maybe 2022 was was finally the stake through the heart of the uh, <laughs> open-ended open-ended property uh, fund as a structure because obviously many of them had to close in 2016 uh gate i mean and many of them gated in the in the pandemic but in 2022 it was still dragging on and so the one thing that has come back from dfms when you talk about property is that they go to the uh, investment trust for those yeah it does it does seem quite interminable the whole uh, open-ended property fund saga you know if you think back to yes. what 2016 or even there have been obviously kind of earlier incidents it's, it's interesting just in your point about the share price dividend yields on on the investment trusts you have had some bizarre i suppose what might seem like optically high yields you know for example i remember at some point in 2022 having a look and you had names like keystone positive change kind of offering quite punchy yields which perhaps you wouldn't that's not a natural place you you'd expect to kind of see that kind of thing so yeah that, that's all very interesting stuff and i'm i'm conscious of time David, it'll be interesting for us to, to keep an eye on these these developments. Do you have any any final words for 2023 before we? Uh... Well, I su- I suppose it will be it will be a year when we when we figure out what bonds are for because one of the things that happened in 2022 is people who didn't own bonds for income because there wasn't any income owned them to provide ballast in the portfolio and keep volatility low, but they were among the more volatile of asset classes. If we have another year of bond volatility, will that really cause DFMs to question the structural role that bonds have in portfolios? Or if we just have a year where bonds do what bonds are supposed to do, which is the prices rise and the yields fall when we have a recession, then that will almost be a reassurance for DFMs that bonds do what they say on the tin. Maybe that would be the, the biggest structural question dealt with in the year ahead and i'd also like to reassure readers all of the other podcasts won't just be me waffling on we will have external guests again on the next edition and all of the other editions in 2023 <laughs> that's very reassuring yeah i mean the, the perhaps the, the price form bonds will reset things as well for yes both bonds and for the you know i feel like the kind of death of 60 40 portfolio features are now kind of out of date perhaps but, but we shall see so um yeah thank you very much, David, for your time. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.